Hello, everybody. On this week's episode of Coastal Voices, Liz MacArthur interviews Jackie Green, the first Indigenous Director of Social Work at the University of Victoria. Stay tuned for this and news from the Haida Nation. Thank you for tuning in to Coastal Voices on CFUV 101.9 FM. Also find us online at cfuv.uvic.ca. Everybody, once again, welcome to this week's episode of Coastal Voices. I hope you're all enjoying this beautifully drab day inside your homes or wherever you happen to be listening from today. I was certainly excited to hear the sound of rain when I woke up, and I was starting to miss that West Coasty rainfall. I'm glad to see it's back. Uh, water our plants. Hopefully, not for too long, though. Uh, that can be a bummer. So. Every week on Coastal Voices, we have interviews with members of the Indigenous and non-Indigenous ally community across Turtle Island. And today, things will be slightly different as well, uh, as we will be airing an interview of Liz MacArthur, who is the Community Affairs Director here at CFUV. In this interview, Liz interviews Jackie Green, the Director of Social Work here at the University of Victoria. My name is Jackie Green, and I'm the director for the School of Social Work. And you are new as a director. When were you uh, appointed? I was appointed July 1st. 2013. I've been a faculty member for 13 years, since 2000. And you're the first Indigenous uh, director of the School of Social Work, is that right? That's correct. And that must be uh, exciting for you. It's exciting, and it's also a little bit nervous. There's a lot of people that are um, depending on, you know, me in this position, and um, it's good. I think it's a really good position for me. Um, Also the first director of a mainstream social work in Canada. Wow. Uh, There's a lot of schools of social work, and uh, there's a lot of Indigenous schools of social work, but in terms of mainstream social work, I'm the first Indigenous director. Wow. Um, Does that mean, do you think that will um, give you sort of a different take on the way that you approach your work here, or maybe you can infuse the school with something that um, hasn't been there before? Well, I certainly come with um, all my community and my academic experience into this position, so um, by that it's all rooted within Indigenous knowledge, epistemology, pedagogy, it all comes from that place. Um, My involvement with um, Indigenous communities, different organizations, different other Indigenous institutes, I bring that to this position as well. So I am taking on the new, it's been a month for me since students have come back, so 
not only am I doing all of what the school requires in terms of at a national provincial level and our HSD, I'm also continuing with the Indigenous Academic Advisory and different community events. So it's kind of the last month has been double the work because mm -hmm. I'm not letting it go. So that's what I bring into this position. Mm -hmm. And when I read the, the release from you, Vic, they talked about your work focusing on things like decolonization, and um, maybe you can give me an idea of what your work has been up to this point and your focus. Well, I've been working, I work closely with Rabina Thomas, um, who's also a faculty member here in, when I first started in 2000, and back then we started developing um, the Indigenous specialization. So rather than look at, um, you know, social work counseling skills or advocacy um, those kind of things as a social worker we started looking at um, colonialism uh, what it is um, so it is the Indian Act it's the residential school it's the banning of indigenous languages ceremonies a way of life so by learning that we're decolonizing um, and we're knowing that there's another way of life so we learn about what colonization has done and we learn what our people have done historically, how we cared for our children, how we cared for our communities, how ceremony was a way of life, but in fact, it, it is, there's so much ethic and protocol in our ceremonies that I could argue that that was the legislation that we lived within. <laughs> and we have legislation in Canada and a province, well, for Indigenous people, our ceremonies um, is our law. And so that's what I, so for me, that's what decolonization is. It's understanding those historical um, tortures, I would say, or violence, um, and then also looking at how do we rebuild it? How do we relearn? What can we bring forward? Um, how do we do that? Who do we do that with? And, um, and it's, there's a lot of pressure to learn. There's a lot of... Um, assumptions as well that especially in social work and child welfare there's always the assumption when we're working with indigenous particularly children who have been removed from their communities they've grown up and become adults there seems to be an assumption assumption that um, we want that that they want to learn and a lot of times they don't want to learn mm -hmm. a lot of times um, because they've been dislocated from their family or their community they're angry and they're or they were removed from a really bad situation and, you know, they, they don't want to know. So it also comes with that. And so part of our decolonizing work is to respect those spaces as well. Mm -hmm. um, and to, you know, at least, you know, we be a friend, we build a relationship. And um, whenever people are ready, they'll return back to who they are as an Indigenous person. I feel like I'm hearing more and more about uh, decolonization work happening on campus, mm -hmm. especially, but also in the broader community of Victoria. Do you think that there is um, maybe a growing movement now? Um, I guess we have seen mm -hmm. movements like this, but um, I guess, are you optimistic and do you see actual change happening? I do see change happening. Um, I did an interview with um, a young woman yesterday and uh, she asked a similar question. And so I, I think there's a lot of change. I think that, you know, um, having an Indigenous specialization in our social work program and having the First Peoples House here on campus, mm -hmm. um, Indigenous Governance um, with Ty Aggie Alford and I believe on campus there's probably about 20 to 25 teaching staff, mm -hmm. full-time, sessionals. It could be more. It might be 30. 
I think that in and of itself is a really strong message that our university is very supportive of centering or at least bringing to the center indigenous education. Mm -hmm. um, throughout Victoria, absolutely. I think across the province, I, I believe that um, a lot of um, communities are recognizing that indigenous ways of knowing and being is that's that's the way we need to live and that's what we need to bring into our governance, into our leadership. And so I'm also seeing from non-Indigenous people that there's a lot more respect and there's a lot more people who are interested in learning and understanding. Certainly there still are a lot of racist comments around, um, especially when it comes to when we're talking about treaty or fishing rights or hunting, that seems to bring out a lot of the racist attitudes. However, um, I do see um, a movement toward um, society decolonizing. So an example I shared with a person yesterday is that when we were in high school, my generation, it was never a vision, it was never a thought that we could pursue post-secondary education. We couldn't conceptualize it because we were conditioned to know that we would never be able to do that kind of work. We um, And so I, if you don't know... Um, so one of the things around um, the Indian Act and colonization and assimilation, mm -hmm. um, many of our people were only allowed to go up to grade 8 to grade 10. They were not allowed to go beyond that. So we get conditioned to believe and live that. So when I was in high school, that wasn't a thought. I, I knew I graduated, but then I went and worked in a community because I didn't have that vision. Mm -hmm. So um, it took probably about five years before I started pursuing that. In 94, I made a full commitment to pursue post-secondary. Now, my nephew graduated from high school two years ago, and he's automatically in college. Mm -hmm. And all his age, it's not even a question. They're in college. They're finding somewhere to go. Mm -hmm. So I see that turning around, and um, I see the young people who have really strong relationships with all groups of people, no matter what they are, whether they're same sex, you know, whether they're mm -hmm. got disabilities or all of that, the younger people are the ones that are breaking down mm -hmm. the um, marginalization that, you know, our generation mm -hmm. lives within. So you have to give yourself some credit, though, and people in your generation who did what you did, though, and mm -hmm. did pursue it despite those barriers. Mm -hmm. um, what what helped you to be able to go forward with you know, with post-secondary education? You know, you said there were those barriers up. Mm -hmm. Were there specific people that pushed you, or did you just make a decision on your own that you wanted to do this? I think I, I made a decision. It's funny because when I first started um, school, once I graduated, I was interested in becoming a CGA or an accountant, <laughs> and that's what I studied. And... Um, I think the more that I was taking courses, the more that I enjoyed what I was learning. Um, and um, I guess to, you know, to add on to that, the more that I was learning, the more I was questioning around how come our people don't do this or how come we're not interested in this. Or, and that was a big eye-opener uh, eye for me. I took an anthropology course, and um, that was the first time I studied residential school, and I had known both my parents attended, but I didn't really understand the implications of that. Mm -hmm. So when I started asking, um, so when I was going to high school and elementary school, my parents um, chose and made a decision that I cannot study anything Indigenous. I can't, you know, take 
um, Haisla language. At lunchtime, I couldn't take any of the First Nations courses that were offered. Um, and they said that if I wanted to succeed, I have to succeed the white way. And the reason why they said that to me, and this is what they told me, is that because they were so, um, there was so much violence against them when they were in school mm -hmm. about being Haisla, about being Native, that they wanted to protect us. And so it was out of more protecting me from what they went through. Um, so in 94, when I was doing my coursework, my dad and I and my mom and I started talking. And so since then, my entire post-secondary has been, yeah. I'm learning this in school, but this is what our people used to do. So mm -hmm. it was like two forms of learning simultaneously hmm. throughout all of those years. So it's been quite exciting, and maybe that's what kept me in school all these years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I can see having something, the extracurricular support and yeah. something enriching like that would definitely help, I yeah. think. Um, did you go back and learn uh, the high school language and everything once you were in post-secondary? Yes. I Well, I didn't learn it. I can't speak it fluently, but when I am home, I can understand the mm. conversation. I know, especially when we're having our feasting ceremony, um, when there is a death and there are certain cultural practices that we um, participate in. Um, I understand that, mm -hmm. um, but I can't speak it fluently. Mm -hmm. I have learned my whole PhD as in, on Heisla Nuyam, which is our way of life and our laws. Mm -hmm. And so that's just uh, my PhD has been pretty much, you know, since I started in 94, like just grouping it all, like my own lived experiences of, you know, knowing what the institutes, the governments, and these laws have done, but at the same time, um, learning how our people lived historically and how um, our feasting or knowledge of landscape, knowledge of how our people moved all over was our governing system. Um, and if you have knowledge of that, then you know, you're, you've got a pretty prominent position within our community. And so I learned both of those. Yeah. When you were learning about language and ceremony and governance and all of that, um, was there, I mean, I think when we think about traditional like university um, research, think about looking at texts and things like that, were there texts that you could draw from or you, were you basically talking to people? I didn't want to do interviews. Um, so basically it was, um, my dad is one of the knowledge holders in our family, um, in our community, both my mom and dad. They're um, called upon by other communities and families to speak for them. So that's a lot of knowledge right there. Um, of course, when I was, you know, preparing for comprehensives and, um, you know, major papers, I, I certainly had to look at different texts. Um, what that did for me is it, um, and looking particularly to the history of British Columbia, so when, you know, settlers came, when um, the economic boom was happening through fishing, through building the railways. Um, I certainly read a lot of that. Um, I found three dissertations that were written on my community mm -hmm. from 1936, and one was in 1946 and 1972. Um, and so I read those, and I didn't feel that they did um, the Heisler story justice in a way that I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was like the Heisla people have a feast and they have four clans and each clan has a chief and then they moved on to the next one. So it is very disconnected. Mm -hmm. And so what I was able to bring into those teachings was the entire process of um, 
why are you having a feast? Who's going to be involved? And, you know, who do you work with? And, and how do you invite people? And what's the protocol when you invite people? So I went a lot deeper and kind of bought that personal experience to to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very fortunate, and it was my dream come true, that when I defended my PhD, I was actually able to de- defend it in my community, mm-hmm. in my village. And um, I think my committee said I was the first one to defend a PhD in, a co- in uh, my community. Mm-hmm. And certainly my committee were very strong advocates for me, um, particularly to grad studies and making sure I followed all the rules. And <laughs> and that was um, a huge undertaking because not only did I defend an academic paper um, to suit graduate studies so that I could pass, I also defended Heisland Nuyum in front of my own people. And there was about 150 people who came to my defense. And then later on in the evening, um, we did traditionally where we hosted a feast and we thanked people mm-hmm. for um, listening to my story. And um, there was about 450 people there. Mm. So it was um, writing the whole PhD journey at the same time I was preparing for a feast. Mm-hmm. So those are two big things that I'd done at the same time. What was the reaction from your community when you defended this? They were... I was really nervous about, because sometimes uh, there are so many different teachings, there are so many different ways that families know teachings, and I was afraid that someone would say, that's not the way, this is how you're supposed to do it. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen at all. In fact, um, all, of my, all of my family, the community, were so, um, they were very emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, my one uncle, uh, he's a CEO. He has all of these leadership um, positions in business. He's a business person. Um, he, he, he's an economic developer, so he brings in like millions of dollars to different businesses. And um, after I defended and I passed, he couldn't even talk to me. He was just weeping. Uh-huh. He was just weeping. So that, that's how I can express, like how, mm-hmm. they, how they took it when I defended. Um, there was um, the local school, they bought in all of the grade six students. Mm-hmm. Um, so they all came, um, high school students came. And uh, the young women were very thankful because they said that it's hard for them to leave the community and it's hard for them to live in a city, go through a, a graduate program and come out sane. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't imagine it. Mm-hmm. And so it gave them a vision that they could do it as well. Mm-hmm. So my community embraced me, and they were really proud. They were really proud of me. I don't actually know where your community is. Where is oh, it? Oh, yeah, it's a Heisla community. Um, we're close to the town of Kitimat. Um, oh. I always say, too, when I'm um, doing presentations, if you don't know Kitimat, you might know Elkan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Rio Tinto now. Um, it's the northwest coast of British Columbia. Okay. So we're about three hours southwest of Prince Rupert. Is it very different from living here on the island, do you think? What, uh, do you like being down here, or do you miss home? I, miss, I certainly miss home. Uh, it's a small community. Um, the town side is about 10,000 people. Um, it's growing now because of all of the industry that's moving in. Um, my village, um, up in the north, a lot of our, we all refer to it as our villages. I think down here they say they're the res or whatever, but we say our village. Uh, there's about 600 that live in my, my village. 
and Kitimat also means people of the snow. Mm. So there's tons of snow. Like uh, We don't get as much anymore, but it used to go as high as the roofs. Um, we used to go up on the roof with my dad and slide off the roof. <laughs> That's how much snow we had. We don't get as much once in a while. So living in Victoria, um, I like it. We don't have as much snow. We get the rain, but um, it's just the right size for me. Um, if I go up to on the northern part of the island, it reminds me of home. Yeah. Small town. Yeah, small town remote. Yeah. Okay, so you're a month into your position with students back. Yeah. And um, you're obviously very busy. Uh, what? W- how long will your position last? And what are your sort of hopes and how do you want to shape the department? My position lasts for five years. Mm-hmm. What I what my hope is is to um, strengthen the relationships with the different um, agencies. Um, social work can exist with agencies because lo- all our students go through practicums, whether it's a third and fourth year or the master's program. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly want to strengthen the relationships with the students. Um, so um, that means a lot of things. It means I'm in community a lot. It means that I, I want to be better present when students are doing their work because I think that they're it's a really significant journey that they're on. And I always think that, you know, people, you know, they might compare social work to the sciences. Well, I think social work's just as important because we're entering people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we're entering people's lives not because they really want us to, but because there's a need to. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as social workers, we need to, social workers need to have good relationships with people they work with um, so that we're not continuing to marginalize, you know, poor people or, you know, marginalize all different kinds of groups of people. So that's what I want to bring is that message is that as social workers, how can we strengthen families that we work with, how do we bring resilience into the children's lives that we're entering into and give them a vision that even though their lives might be pretty messed up right now, that they they can have a vision and they can know that they can do really well in their life. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to have a post-secondary, but they can live a good life. So I think for me in this position, that's what I want to bring. I also... I'm interested in strengthening the Indigenous, obviously the Indigenous part, um, Indigenous uh, social work. Social work has been very harmful to my people for many, many years. Um, We don't have a good reputation, um, especially now that uh, Truth and Reconciliation, I'm not too sure if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with the residential school, um, child welfare has come up quite a bit. That, okay, residential school era has been done, now it's the child welfare system that's harming us. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'd like to bring in, um, you know, and work with our staff and our faculty around um, how do we we undo that? How do we make those relationships with the Indigenous families different and where we're embracing them rather than punishing them um, for however messed up their life might be Mm -hmm. and just try and consider the historical impacts of why that family is experiencing that. It's not that easy to do. <laughs> there is there is a lot of certainly are a lot of there are a lot of children that need intervention and protection. Ab- absolutely. Um, so it's it's a delicate walk for sure. And I think that practices have always shifted. Policies have always shifted. To me, I believe it's the behaviors of the workers who will make a difference. Mm. Um, and a lot of times that means listening to our heart and our gut. 
um, and there's no course that will ever teach that. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I'd like to bring to the program. Mm -hmm. Well, you're talking about um, changing, um, I guess, the negative way in which the child and welfare system interacts with Indigenous people. Are there are there jurisdictions that you look to for maybe? Um, I don't know, ideas on, or, is there anybody that does it right, basically, mm -hmm. that you're sort of looking at for ideas on, on change? Hmm. I'm also the project manager for Indigenous Child Wellbeing Research Network. Mm -hmm. So we um, provide research training to different communities, and we the, the training that we deliver is always rooted from whatever that cultural knowledge is from the community that we enter into. So although we have a basic template, it's very different no matter where we go across the province. So one example, I'll, there's two examples I'll share with you. And one was um, in the northwest coast of British Columbia, Laqualam's community. It's on Port Simpson, just off of um, Prince Rupert. So there's a group of grandmothers that we connected with up there. <clears throat> and they came together and they were talking about when they were raising their own children, they did a horrible job because they're all survivors of residential school. It messed them up. It didn't give them what they needed to nurture their own children. Mm -hmm. um, so now they have grandchildren. So apology to their own children, and they're giving back to the grandchildren. So they call themselves the Grannies Club, mm -hmm. and they work with the local school in that community. Um, they're they're not a, they're kind of affiliated with the the um, the social service agency or child welfare agency that is up there, but more in a sense that they're there as a sounding board or they're there to embrace or they're to hug mom or dad or they're there to cheer on the kids while they're playing basketball. Like they're there, they're people that are volunteering to come to all of these different things, not necessarily as a social worker. And so um, NIFKIS, is a it, it's a delegated agency. I don't know if you know. De they're delegated from... So there's the Ministry for Children and Families who look after child protection. Now, in Indigenous people across the province said, that's not working for us. We need to have our own agencies. So the province have delegated um, different child welfare agencies that are run and operated by indigenous people. So mm. we call them delegated agencies. Okay. So this agency has drawn upon a granny's club to work with them when they're working with children and families. And I think that's a step in the right direction because it's not threatening. Mm. It's more embracing. It's more about listening to the problems and, and then giving advice when they feel the need to. The second example I'll share with you is from Stotlow Nation, which is in the south of the province um, in Chilliwack area. Now they have this huge, um, again it's another delegated agency, and so they cover all of the different resources that a family needs to overcome. So if a family has um, alcohol and drug problem, they have a treatment center there. They have a longhouse which is uh, relevant to Coast Salish people, so they have that there, they have a teepee. Not all Indigenous people use TP teachings, but they have one there. And then they have um, three different homes that are similar to what we would call a group home. So rather than remove a child from a family into foster care, they put the entire family into one of those homes. Mm -hmm. And they stay there for six months or however long they need to. The family learns together how to be a family, so they learn parents learn how to teach their kids to do chores they 
you know, they learn to work on homework with the kids. They learn, um, like, different, like, just skills as a family to relearn together. That is almost 100% effective. Mm. Um, what I was, what we were told when we visited was that one family, they walked away. Um, those kids are now in permanent care, but every other family that have gone in are all out of um, the ministry files now. Hmm. So that's so. Those are, there are practices out there that are working, and that they are making a difference. So, small steps. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for uh, for being my guest and uh, doing this interview today. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to CFUV 101.9. Once again, that was Liz MacArthur speaking with Jackie Green at the University of Victoria. And if you missed out on that interview, be sure to check out uh, CFUV SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash CFUV under the Coastal Voices playlist. Also, feel free to check out my Twitter page at Sasha Willette where you can receive updates about our program. You can check out the Coastal Voices Facebook group for links and info on everything that we'll talk about today. And, um, you know, if there's a link to something that I'm talking about and you're you're interested in it, definitely check it out there. I usually uh, post all the links that I speak about online. So it's just Coastal Voices. You can just look that up on Facebook and it'll, it should pop right up as a, as a group. Coming up, the Res Sisters by Thompson Highway uh, from September 16th to 9th, October 19th of this year. Um, that's at the Belfry, and tickets go on sale or have went on sale already, and you can find them out at belfrybc.ca, and that's uh, the Belfry Theatre in Victoria. Uh, so, for some music, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and figure out some rainy day music, but I'll let you know what I picked when we come back. And after that, we'll have some news. Thank you for tuning in to CFUV 101.9 in Victoria. You are listening to Coastal Voices. Hey, everybody. That was Beach House from their album Bloom. That was wild. One of my favorite songs off that album, which is such a solid album altogether. Some of you might know that Beach House is going to grace us with their presence in September. I believe it's on September 21st. Uh, there was a concert announcement recently, and I was like, whoa, uh, that seems a little soon. But yeah, I guess September is totally only like a month away now. So if you want to see Beach House and hear some of that dreamy, dreamy good music, uh, I guess check out the tickets online. Uh, and yeah, once again, that was Beach House. Uh, up next, going to play some Steph Cameron, and then and then we will get into some news. This is Steph Cameron. This is called, what is it called? I think it's called Blues at My Window. That's the one. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to, to Coastal Voices on CFUV, and this is Steph Cameron. Try all right, everybody, that once again was Steph Cameron, and you are listening to CFUV 101.9 FM. Let us get into some Indigenous news on the island and across Canada, mostly in BC today, actually. Today in the news, the Sliaman First Nation, who, was first, who voted on the First Nations final agreement on July 10th of May, uh, July, rather July 10th, may or may not have been Sliaman members. 
members who did not show up may have inadvertently cast a vote by ill divine a vote by ill divine proxy. According to Brandon Peters, who is a university student from Slayaman, the eligibility and enrollment uh, community did not even have an appeal prog- process. There was an apparent 57% voter approval for the final agreement that has cost this community almost two decades of negotiations under the British Columbia Treaty Commission. The Slayaman Nation takes. Uh, the Salmon Nation owes $18 million of the $30 million set- settlement capital transfer in loans undertaken to finance those very negotiations. The Salmon Anti-Treaty Group then sought out a BC court injunction that would prevent the second voting day from happening. According to reports, some voters have received three ballots and some have been offered $20 for a yes vote. Elders were also promised $15 thousand dollars on ratification for the final agreement agreement the affidavits were filed to support the request for an injunction which would provide adequate time for uh to unravel proper voting procedures from the present confusion these were denied by the by a court in british columbia and the Haida Nation, in addition to siding along with 31 First Nations in Canada and British Columbia to launch a joint legal challenge to the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline, is now pursuing its own lawsuit to put a stop to the project. The Haida Nation have filed their court challenge in the Federal Court of Appeal on July 14th. The president of the Haida Nation, Peter Lanton, has said that the project threatens the lands and waters uh, in the tour in the territory that the government's decision to approve it undermines the objectives of previous agreements between Haida people and the government. Peter Lanton says that this is clearly corporate and foreign interest against everything and uh, that it is that is right and against the chorus of the people from every spectrum across BC who have said no to this project. Harper's decision is just plain wrong and not in the national interest. As has been claimed, uh, reconciliation leading leading to peace and order and healthy environment is in all of our national interests. It seems as if, with most cases, the Crown's responsibility to the Haida Nation and the Haida people has not been met. The family of Loretta Saunders have traveled from Labrador to Halifax for the preliminary hearing to face the two people charged with killing her. Motions ran high inside of the courthouse as as a family member uh, lunged at the two people charged with killing Loretta. Our hearts are with Loretta's family at this terrible time, and if you would like to support the justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women, you can look to the website, It Starts With Us, for support. The 2014 Regina North American Indigenous Games are happening July 20th to 27th, and the Games are hosting athletes and teams from 26 different regions in North America and indigenous communities as they compete in 15 different sports. AP&T and National News will have in-depth coverage online and on television of your favorite teams, highlights from day-to-day, and most up-to-date medal standings. You can watch daily from June, July 21st to 25th to enjoy the 2014 Regina North American Indigenous Games. That's it for news for today.
Hello, it is just about it for me here on Coastal Voices. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, We're going to close up the show with some Flying Down Thunder. Uh, This song is called... Oh, rather, I think we'll do Whoopso, actually. This this is more more in the mood of what we're going for. This is uh, Odomin, and this is from Kualanat, um, their album that they just released this year. And if you'll remember or look back into our SoundCloud, I had an interview with Adam from uh, this band, Whoopso. So if you want to check that out, make sure you check out soundcloud.com uh, dot, uh, dot forward slash CFUV. This is Whoopso.